listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So the book of James, here we go. All right, verse number one, we're going to jump in there. Let's read through these first 11 verses. We're going to look at these this morning. We'll be in the book of James for eight weeks. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord." He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." So let's jump back into verse number one. So we've just seen in the video uh, a few things about James. So he begins, James. So James was a half-brother of Jesus. And my 12-year-old just leaned over uh, when the video first started. Axel said, does half-brother mean cousin? Um, And half-brother, it means you share a parent. And so half-brother, it's like, okay, so which parent? So they both shared Mary, but the father of Jesus was whom? God, God the Father. And so, because Joseph did not help in the procreation of Jesus, right? But Joseph helped in the procreation of James along with other kids as well. And so we have James, the half-brother of Jesus because Jesus' father is God and they shared Mary. Okay, so we have the half-brother of Jesus here. And some of y'all may think, man, it would be really cool to have a half-brother named Jesus. But think about when you're kids. Maybe y'all have, uh, maybe you you were a kid at one point, Uh, you had siblings, uh, you went to school, something like that, you had friends, whatever it is, maybe if you're still there, you know this to be a fact, but there's always this tattletelling back and forth. Well, he did this, well, she said that, well, he did this first. Think about doing that with Jesus if he is your brother. He is always right. Every time he tattles, you're in trouble. And every time you tattle on him, guess who's never in trouble? Jesus, yeah. So it may seem like a really cool thing, but being brothers with Jesus had to be really tough. He's always right. But if we think here about the family of Jesus, imagine the family dinner settings. We have Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. We have Mary, who gave birth, virgin birth, to Jesus. We also have James here, who's just a half-brother. So uh, he's there. He's He's always getting told on. He's never right. Then you've got the dad, Joseph, um, who, you know, their marriage didn't start out just ideally. So if we keep kind of thinking about the expanse of that family, they had another brother named Jude who happened to write a book of the Bible. So right there at the immediate family dinner, you've got a bunch of guys who are writing books of the Bible or who the Bible is about. 
But then if you think about it, they have this cousin. So if, the, if they bring the cousins over, you got this weird, you know, boogering, homeschooled kid named John the Baptist who's out here all by himself. He's got long hair and he's just this weird, you're like, man, John the Baptist, and he's over here, he's, you know, eating grasshoppers. And he's just, it's a really interesting family dynamic we have here. And this is the way that James grew up. But here's what's interesting. If you read John chapter seven, John seven says that even though James was the brother of Jesus, he did not believe in Jesus. He did not think that he was the Messiah. And oftentimes it's very difficult to convince your immediate family of something. So they were like, yeah, yeah, he was crazy. All of Jesus' brothers and sisters thought that he was kind of crazy. But then after the resurrection, we see it in 1 Corinthians 15, James sees the resurrected Jesus in the flesh and says, now I believe because I saw you fully dead. I know that you never sinned and now you are resurrected. And can I tell you, friend, that story, the same transformation story, that James experienced can be your story as well. Place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. Notice the second thing that he says here, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say a brother or a half brother of Jesus. He says, I am a servant. And the Greek word there for servant is doulos. Everybody say doulos. So that can either be translated slave or servant. Now that term slave and a lot of times servant gets a really negative connotation because of our history as a nation and rightfully so because uh, when slavery was around, when it was legal, what we were doing is saying, hey, you're created in the image of God, but we are going to abuse you and abuse the image of God. That's a little different than what he's talking about here because when he talks about slavery, it is saying, I want to voluntarily be a slave. Now, if I invited someone this morning, if I said, who here wants to wash my truck once a week? Any takers? Once a week, you want to wash my truck? You don't even have it. You, no, your parents aren't going to drop you off so you can wash my truck. You'd be like, yeah, I might do it, uh, but it's going to get kind of old. But if I said, every time you wash my truck, I'm going to give you $1,000. All of a sudden, we're going to have a few more takers. And the reason for that is because even though the task did not change, me as the, the giver, the one who's responsible, me who's, you know, you're my servant, you're gonna be like, yes, I really enjoy this because the reward is so great. And so when James says, I'm a servant, he's like, oh man, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I get to be a servant of Jesus Christ. So when we think about slave and servant, from our historical context, we have to think, okay, that was wrong, bad, evil, terrible. What he's talking about here is good. He gets to be a servant of Jesus Christ. He gets to experience joy because the reward and the rewarder is so great. I want you to see eight things this morning. Y'all ready? We got to hustle. That video was uh, several minutes long. It ate into my sermon time. So we're going to see eight things. The first one is this. God doesn't want to make you happy. He wants to make you holy. God doesn't want to make you happy. He wants to make you holy. And we see this right here in these first few words, because as much as we pursue the things of this world, they all look silly compared to what Jesus Christ offers. He is the only one who can offer true love, hope, joy, life eternal, purpose, and everything else that we pursue, everything else that we give ourselves to, everything else that we enslave ourselves to, that we serve, looks ridiculous when we think about the life that Jesus Christ is here offering. 
So he says, I am a servant. I get to be a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And then he says this word, greetings. And that word greetings there, it literally means rejoice, rejoice. But he says here to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Here's what the dispersion was. Back in Acts chapter 7, if you look there, Stephen was the very first martyr of the church. They put Stephen to death. And it was actually Saul who was there responsible for the death of Stephen, Acts chapter 7. And Saul later becomes Paul, who writes 13 books in the New Testament. Really a great transformation story. Acts 7, he puts Stephen to death. In Acts chapter 8, immediately after the martyrdom of Stephen, the death of Stephen, really set into motion this extreme persecution for a lot of the church. So a lot of the church was there in Jerusalem, kind of wait, hey, Jesus just, he left us. He said, go multiply. They begin preaching. Then they, the government and even those religious leaders begin putting those Christians to death. And so what happens is they are dispersed to the ends of the earth, which sounds bad, but it's actually a fulfillment of Acts chapter one and verse number eight. Go to the ends of the earth, preaching the good news of the gospel. James here is saying, yeah, you're in the dispersion, but take joy. The mission of God is being completed because of your dispersion. It's a matter of perspective. This past week, we were sitting at the dinner table. I say table. We have like an island, you know, in, my, in our kitchen, and that's where we eat because we're too lazy to walk into the dining room. Anybody else there? Yes and amen. So, we're sitting there at the uh, dining room kitchen island and we're eating and we're kind of going around the room and uh, my wife, Shannon, who's back there with the kids today, she said, uh, we're going around the room saying what our favorite part of the summer was thus far because our kids were about to start back to school the next day. And uh, so we were talking about the favorite parts of the summer. And so we asked her, hey, what was your favorite part of the summer? And she said, it was probably off-roading. And so uh, we went off-roading uh, several weeks ago up in North Georgia, and we, we go through this trail, and it's up and down, and uh, we're in her Bronco, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and we're having to go four-wheel drive a couple of times. We get to the very end of the trail after being on it for about 40 minutes, and we get to the end, and there's a river there, and you don't see how to get out of the river. It's just a big, wide river, and the trail just ends right into the river. And we're like, all right, well, I guess we got to go through it. And she's whoa, 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 what, wait a second. What if we get stuck? I said, yeah, we don't have any cell phone service. Yeah, so what are we going to do? I don't know, man. I guess we're just going to persevere, right? Yeah, yeah, but what if? And I said, baby, you just got to trust me. We're going to make it out. She said, yeah, but I don't. I said, I don't blame you. And so like any loving father and husband, we decided to drive into the river and see if we could get out. So, um, because I didn't want to go back the entire way that we just came, right? And so we go into the river, we drive down, water is up about the bottom of the door, we're driving through, we finally go, come out, go through like a little bit of a deeper hole, you know, we floor it, we get out, we're like, whoo, man, that was a lot of fun. Everybody's like, man, that was awesome, you know, your adrenaline's pumping. But here's the thing, if we'd gotten stuck in the middle of that river, where we would probably still be until today, Shannon would not have said, man, my favorite part of the summer was off-roading. She would not have said that. It's a matter of perspective. In the moment as she's sitting there looking at this trial, at this tribulation, at this test, she's not saying, ooh, off-roading is the favorite part of my summer thus far. No, but her perspective was, we came through it. I was scared. It was tough, but man, it was a lot of fun. James does not promise to make us happy. He doesn't promise us a lot of fun, but what he does say is, the trial, the tribulation is a matter of perspective. So that's what he's writing. That's who he's writing to. That's what he's writing about. Verse number two. So we look at verses two through four. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say what? If you meet trials of various kinds. He is guaranteeing you that we're gonna meet trials of various kinds. What's wild about this is in the church culture, ours included in the church culture, if things are not going well, or if everything is not positive, or if something is you know, not working out to your fancy, then there must be something wrong in your life. It's almost like we don't expect trials to come into our lives, right? If things aren't just you know, going right along, my bank account's not growing, and my kids aren't uh, advancing through school, it's like, man, something is wrong with my life. What is wrong? But James says, no, when trials come, And how do we define a trial? When you meet trials of what kind? Various kinds. So it could be sickness. It could be loneliness. um, it uh, It could be depression. It could be anxiety. Something happens to you. You are stuck in some sort of sin that you just can't get yourself out of. Whatever that trial is, he said, of various kinds. It could be major. It could be minor. It could be big. It could be small. This is what defines our lives most of the time is being stuck in trials. So when trials come, count it all joy, my brothers. Here's the question for us this morning. I want y'all to help me, help me with this a little bit. How do you often feel or respond when trials come into your life? Anybody? Annoyance. Anger, yeah. Somebody back here. Overwhelmed, yeah. Fear. Anxiety. Yeah. I I especially get anger when it seems unjust. I thought I was doing the right thing. But I was living the right way. Why is my life not being, why is their life blessed and mine's not? You ever feel despair? Man, when is this going to end? You feel overwhelmed. I can't, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Is there a light there? Is God, can he hear my prayers? Is anybody up there? Is heaven even listening? Anybody there? But notice, James doesn't say that because if I were writing a letter to someone who had just been kicked out of their homeland, someone whose life was put on the line, someone who was experiencing pretty much any kind of test, you know what I wanna say? Man, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. That, man, that's so sad. You, you poor thing. But James says, count it all joy. What in the world gives him the right to say in the midst of various kinds of trials to count it all joy? How does James make this claim? Here's how James makes this claim. Because we always get the better end of this deal. We always get the better end of this deal. Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter four, it says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, some of y'all this morning may say, yeah, but it doesn't feel like a light momentary affliction. And James is saying perspective, perspective for those of us who persevere. 
You say, man, I just don't, I don't have time to spend, uh, I don't have time to be in the word of God or spend time in prayer. He says, it's worth it to wake up a few minutes early. It's worth it to show forgiveness to your husband. It's worth it to show patience to your wife. It's worth it to put your reputation on the line and evangelize your coworker. It's worth it to give sacrificially, to give up your time. He's saying it's worth it. Consider the perspective that he has here because we have the weight of glory to look forward to. In Luke chapter six, Jesus says this beginning in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice, rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. Friend, listen, Joy is not some sort of feeling that is going to overcome you. No, here's the second thing I want us to see is that joy is a byproduct of believing in God in the midst of great pain. Joy is a byproduct of believing in God in the midst of great pain. Whatever your default is, annoyance, anger, being overwhelmed, asking, whatever that is, He's saying, yeah, but we get to experience joy because God has this in control and put your faith, your belief, your hope in him and him alone. In the same way that there is a peace that passes all understanding, this joy is not natural. Joy, the joy that he speaks of here is supernatural. It is only a gift of God. That's how no matter the circumstance, no matter the trial of various kinds, he can say, count it all joy. My focus, my heart, my eyes, my intentions are on Jesus Christ. This life is only lasting for a minute. Amen? Then we get to verse number three. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let's look at this word steadfastness for a moment. And in the Greek, that word for steadfastness is hupomone. Everybody say hupomone. Yeah, that's one of my favorite words in the Greek. I love this word. Hupomone, we'll see it all throughout the book of James. But hupomone could mean this. It means to remain under. So if you think about Atlas, who has the world on his shoulders, you know, you've seen, that's, he's hupomone-ing. Um, so remaining under, maybe another word, maybe your translation says perseverance. It's a certain amount of staying power. Or another way of defining it is heroic endurance. This steadfastness, this remaining. And so how do we get this? What does the passage say? Somebody help me. How do we get this steadfastness? What does it say? Testing. This testing. That's how we get there. You don't just, hey, man, I'm steadfast. I'm ready to go. That's like me calling the Falcons. Hey, I'm ready to play wide receiver for you. (laughs) You're like, no, 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 that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, because I'm not in shape and I'm not fast and I'm not tall, and I don't have great hands, and I've never even tried to, to work. It's like, yeah, but the way that we get there, the way that we, we get to the steadfastness, this hupomone is through the testing. And the testing that he's referring to there is a testing where they would take, a, a silversmith would take silver, and he would heat it up. And as it is heated up, the impurities, or what's called the dross, is, it comes to the top. And as those impurities come to the top out of the silver, he's able to scrape those away. And he keeps scraping them away. Then he lets the silver cool. Then he heats it back up. It's under trial. Then he scrapes away more and more dross until the silversmith can see his reflection in that silver. 
Now, this is what James is talking about. We, the, the dross, the impurities are taken away, taken away through trial and testing until creator God can see his reflection in us as his children. He says, so stay there, stand fast. Here's the third thing that we see this morning from this passage. We can't avoid trials, but we can choose to glorify God in the midst of them. We can't avoid them. You can try all you want, and many of us do. And next week, we're going to talk about trials and temptations and tribulations in the next section of verses, but we cannot avoid them. Verse number four, notice what he says here. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in what? Lacking in nothing. Now, if I told you this morning, if I had a, I almost, almost did this, I didn't have time. But if I had a table full of uh, different ingredients, if I had some flour and if I had some baking soda and some baking powder and some eggs and some sugar and whatever else, if I said, hey, who wants to come eat one of these? Who wants to eat some baking soda with me? You'd be like, nah, I might you know, lick my finger and stick it in the sugar and have some of that. That's about it. If I said, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take all these things and I'm gonna put them together and I'm gonna make a delicious cake. Actually, I'm gonna get Lisa Looney to make me a delicious cake, a delicious pound cake, which I need some sour cream for that, right? So over here is a bowl of sour cream. So if I, if, but if I said, hey, Lisa Looney, take these, take all of these ingredients, and I want all of these ingredients to have their full effect because what the result of that is going to be is a delicious pound cake. Man, that looks good. That's what he's saying here. We can't just say, okay, I went through one trial, now I've got steadfastness. When steadfastness has its full effect, it takes all these ingredients in our lives, all of these different trials. Man, the result is beautiful. It says here is perfection. And in other words, what he says there, this perseverance, this hupomone, literally means it is finished, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete. In other words, that you may be mature. Now, oftentimes we think, man, yeah, but maturity is just, it's, uh, it's studying more of the Bible, reading and having more information. If I said, hey, this morning we're gonna have a Bible study and uh, John Piper is gonna come in and teach this Bible study. It's gonna be every single Wednesday night and we're gonna be going through the book of Romans. Man, we would, y'all would, y'all would go sign up for that so fast. But if I said, we're gonna have a class on suffering, y'all be like, nah, nah, I ain't doing that. But what does James say here? He says, what's going to produce maturity is persevering through trials. Listen, friend, the fourth thing, to become like Jesus, you must persevere through trials. To be like Jesus, you're like, yeah, yeah, but what else? Man, that's, that's what James is saying here. You must persevere through trials. Trials reveal our weak spots in our lives, and they provide opportunities for us to grow. They reveal weak spots and give us opportunities to grow. Frederick Nietzsche said this, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You thought that was, uh, who was it? Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift, I don't know. One of those. Kelly Clarkson, I don't know. Joan Jett, I don't know. So, man, we listen to Christian rap in my house. <laughs> so, praise God. You, we think, y'all thought, thought that she said that first. No, no, Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. The problem with that is it's not true because your trials can completely overwhelm you. Here's the fifth thing I want us to see. 
is that every trial can either drive you to God or away from him. Every single trial in your life will drive you either to God for the sake of your growth and your maturity and your sanctification and becoming more and more like Christ, or it will drive you away from him. They do not automatically produce good in you. Your focus must remain steadfast on the Lord. Then we get to verse number five. If any of you lacks wisdom, okay, raise your hand if that applies to you. Okay, maybe you just fell asleep for a second, but you're back in right now, all right? Everybody's back in, cool. Some folks are like, yeah, my hand's still up. I, I like a lot of it, yeah. Wisdom, that's probably not on my resume, <laughs> you know? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Can I ask you this? When you pray, what is the expression on God's face? What do you imagine the expression on God's face is when you pray? Anybody? Joy? Real answers. Anybody else? Shaking his head. Frustration? Really? He's proud? I know for me a lot of times, I'm thinking, God, hmm, really? Is that really what you need? Is that really what you're coming to ask me for? Can I tell you, friend, he is a loving, gracious, generous God. James doesn't talk a whole lot about doctrine in this book. He doesn't mention the resurrection, crucifixion. He doesn't, have, he doesn't use really that many big words, but he does here tell us about the character and nature of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, generously to all without reproach. There's no shaking of his head. There's no really, there's no disappointment. There's no, there's none of that. He gives generously. He's like a friend. He's waiting for you to come and talk to him. Please, God. Yes, please come talk to me, child. I love you so much. Look at verse number six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Friend, when, it, when are waves driven and tossed by the sea? When you have that picture in your mind, what is happening in that moment? Huge waves driven and tossed by the sea. What's happening? Storm. He's saying, so in the storms of life, in the trials of life, we ask in faith. Most of us approach God like we do a mutual fund. Mutual fund is I'm going to invest in a lot of different things. I'm going to diverse my money in all these different things. And oftentimes we're like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to invest in uh, my ability, my education, my past, my relationships, my status, my skill, my looks in God. And you know what I mean? Hey, God, if, if you, if, do you want to take care of that for me? You don't? Okay, don't worry. I've got seven other options over here. That stock is kind of tanking. It's cool. I've got all these other options. That's how we often approach God is like a mutual fund. Instead of trusting God as our one and only option. We don't mitigate the risk and say, hey, I'm going to pray. But if he doesn't do it, don't worry. I'm going to come here and do this. I've still, I still got other options. That's why in verse number five, it says, all uh, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Look at verse number eight. Sorry, look at verse number seven. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
If your approach to God is like a mutual fund and you're trying to diversify your faith, he says, you're not going to get it. Don't expect God to respond. Here's the, I don't know, number, what number we're on, sixth thing? Fifth, sixth, I don't know. If your hope is not fully in God, don't expect him to fulfill his promises. James' words, not mine. Verse number seven, if you, are, if you have a little bit of faith in God, a little bit of faith in this, a little bit of faith in this, he's not going to answer you. If it is out of your own power that you think that you can accomplish whatever goal or request, then it is not in the will of God. The will of God requires you to come to him powerless, asking a generous God who will provide. Look at verse number eight with me. He finishes this section. Here's what he calls that person. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Do you know what that word double-minded means? It literally means of two minds. You say one thing and you do the other. On Sunday, we come and we celebrate who God is. Man, the goodness of God. Be thou my vision. Your grace is enough. Man, it's so, it's so awesome. God, I just want to confess my sin to you. I just want to pray to you. I want to, I want to ask you to uh, help me um, to figure out how to uh, engage with my kids or with my family or with my finances or with my coworkers. We do that on Sunday. And then Monday morning comes around. God, I got this. I'm going to go deal with this. I think this probably has a lot to do with, uh, with our own sinfulness. God, if you would please, uh, please take away this desire, this idolatry, this materialism. Take away this, this temptation for pornography. Take away whatever this is on Sunday. We confess that sin. And then Monday, yeah, you know what? I, I think I do need the satisfaction. I do think I need this immediate gratification from this person on the screen. I think I just need to go buy this because I'm missing something in my life. This is what James says. You're double-minded. You come to God saying, God, I want to be satisfied only in you. You are the only one that I need. I was created in your image only for you. But then on Monday, that's not what your life looks like. That person is double-minded, unstable, not in just some of their ways. How many of their ways? All of them. I would ask you this this morning. Is God a safety net for you? Or is he the rope to which you are clinging for life? Is he just, are you just living your life? Hey God, you got me down there, something happens. I'm gonna holler at you. Hey man, can you get me out of this? Hey, hey God, I'm broke. I need this job promotion. What, whatever it is, he's my safety net. Or is he all you have? And you're clinging to him for hope, you're clinging to him for purpose, for identity. Years ago, um, we, were at a, we were at a lighthouse somewhere near the beach, probably. <laughs> there, there aren't any lighthouses in Oklahoma. And so we were at a lighthouse. I remember this, this lighthouse was old. You know, it was probably built by, by the pilgrims or something. I don't know. It was ancient. And we were going up this lighthouse as a family. It's probably not standing anymore. I mean, that's how old it was. Like it had to have fallen down shortly after we got off of it. And so I remember we, we go into this lighthouse. I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. My youngest one, Kingston at the time, uh, he was just a baby, probably, you know, like one, two years old. 
And so uh, we go into this lighthouse and we, you know, we're walking up the inside steps. Well, these steps are like this tall, you know, they're huge. It's like, if I didn't have a kid, I'd be climbing up these lighthouse steps like this. You know, I'm like, how big were the people who built this? Like Goliath? And so, uh, but I remember going up this lighthouse, these steps, and they're just, you know, straight up and just, you know, really steep, really dangerous. But I remember the whole time I'm sitting, I'm not like, do, 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 do. I got this, you know, thankfully I'm taller than the average person. So I can walk. No, no, the whole time I've got a kid on this arm. I've got Kingston. He's right here. You know, if you know Kingston, he's like just calm and just, you know, he, he, he never acts the fool. I'm <laughs> just kidding. So he's not in here so we can say that. Am I right, Axel? Don't tell him. Okay. So I've got Kingston in this hand and in, in this hand, I've got this rail that goes up these steps. And with every single step, I'm hanging onto this rail for dear life. Knowing that if I fall forward up these steps, I wanna bust his head. And if I fall back, there's a bunch of people who also paid for some reason to go up this lighthouse with me. And I'm gonna just take them all out like a bowling ball. So the whole time, I'm just hanging onto that rail for dear life. If that rail was not there, I wouldn't be here today, I guarantee you. But so often we're like, hey, God, yeah, I got this. If I need you, I'll let you know. Instead of hanging on to him, no matter what else happens, man, I've got Jesus and he's got me. That's all I need. Whatever happens, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, however hard the winds are blowing, however tempestuous the seas, However dark the skies, however deep the valley, I've got Jesus. I've got Jesus. He's got me. And he is enough. He's our only hope. He is our only joy. We finish this section here. Verses 9 through 11. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. It doesn't matter how green your thumb is um, or how eventually the plant's going to die. You stop taking care of it. You leave it out in the sun. Verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Again, we have this image, this idea of trials and tribulations. His flower falls and his beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, so we all raised our hand and said we're not wise. Who in here is rich? Anybody? See, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> this is for all of us, okay? Contextually, everybody, anybody in here just like starving to death? Nope. Okay, so we're rich. That's the category that we can place almost all of ourselves in compared to most people in the world who are scrounging up a little bit to eat. But notice here what he says. I think from these three verses, what he's really saying is that trials reveal the foundation of your life. When you have trials, then all of a sudden it comes to light what your life is actually built upon. And he attacks two of them, wealth and beauty, things that we so often pursue. But here's the seventh thing I want you to see is that wealth and beauty often go together. They don't last or provide true joy. They don't last or provide true joy because when it comes to wealth, you can't take it with you. It's eventually gonna, it's going to leave you. And when it comes to beauty, well, gravity wins every time. 
And some of y'all are realizing that faster than others. And the older I get, the heavier my legs feel, right? The heavier my, the bags on my, under my eyes feel. Like it's just, it's just there. You can't fight it. And we try to pursue these things with everything we have. Have you ever scroll on social media and you just scroll and scroll and scroll? You get done and you're like, man, I feel better about myself. I can't wait to do that again in 10 minutes. Or if you go on Amazon, you're like, man, I just got to, man, I never knew that I needed that little gadget for only $12.99 or two for $15.99. My life has not been complete until this moment. And you buy that thing and then you never want to go shopping on Amazon again? Is that the way we function? No. We get through and you're like, man, this compare, man, that person's life looks so much better than mine. And you, you don't, they don't have to be Christian studies. You can go look at secular studies. It shows that social media, the overuse of it, really just the use of it, leads to depression. It leads to loneliness. Social media, community, community media leads to loneliness. Report came out last month that said when a cell phone is in someone's bag beside them when, uh, with a student, they actually score less, they score lower on their test by a whole grade point average because it's there. They just can't wait to open it. It's there. It's calling for us all the time. These things don't last. Here's the last thing I want us to see. We spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't know. Here he's talking about those who are putting their hope and their faith in their wealth, in their health, in their looks, in the ease and the comfort of life while we are still on this planet. Friends, we think that we have things, but in reality, things have us. It goes back to this idea of slavery, of servanthood. We are a slave to these things. Now, notice though what James is not saying. He's not saying, if you are poor, then you have God's love. He's not saying that. He's also not saying that if you are rich, then you have God's blessing. Because so often in the church culture today, we have these two different types of gospels. One is a poverty gospel. Hey, if you sell everything, give it to the poor, then God's going to love you. That's not what he says. The other side is the prosperity gospel. If you do what God says, if you invest in the right things, if you give enough money, you can buy this guy's handkerchief, then, then God's gonna bless you. That's how you know you have the blessing of God. You're doing the right thing. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying this is a prosperity gospel or this is a poverty gospel. He's saying joy is not found in stuff. It's not found in what you have. It's not found in what you don't have. It's not found in what you used to have or what you look like. He's not saying that. He's saying joy comes from Christ no matter where you are, no matter what you have. That's where true joy is found. And for us this morning, who would be statistically on the richer end of the scale, can I just tell you this morning that the resurrection is not for sale. Justification is not for sale. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. Heaven is not for sale. If you were to combine all of Bezos' money, with all of Elon Musk's money. They don't have enough money to purchase salvation. There's not enough money in the world because who is salvation for? James says it's for the lowly. It is for the humble. So humble yourself down and say, man, all I need is the grace of Jesus Christ. 
all I have is his mercy. And in that I can find true joy, no matter what the trials of life look like, no matter if I have much or if I have little. That is not where our identity is found. He says to boast in, make much of, celebrate that because of the good news of the gospel, we have been given a brand new identity. We are no longer dead, we are alive. Because even though we are sinners, each and every one of us, again, we could do a poll, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are without perfection. We have all sinned, we're all messed up. We see it all around us. That's the one thing that we can all agree on is that the world is messed up, it's because of sin. In the midst of that, Jesus Christ came down and lived on behalf of us. The life that we were supposed to live, a life of perfection. We messed it up, so he came down and did that for us. Because of our sin, we deserve to be placed on the cross. We deserve for the wrath of God to eternally be poured out on us because of our sinfulness. That's how bad our sin is. It requires the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ, in his love and in his grace, had the wrath of God poured out on himself. He took it to the point of death. He was placed in the ground, but then he rose three days later so that we could be with him for all of eternity. And he calls us to place our faith in him. So if you have done that, man, you've got hope no matter what happens in this life. These are but momentary afflictions. They're not forever. Our hope, our joy is in him because we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We have a place in heaven right beside the son of God. No matter what the world says about you, no matter what it says that you need, whether it says you're awesome, whether it says you're terrible, no matter what the world says about you, no matter what your dad said about you, if your mom left you, your teacher, whoever it is, Jesus Christ says, you are mine. You are mine. And in him, you are secure forever. We saw this earlier. I want us to close with this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter four. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He goes on, Paul does later in that chapter, and he says this, we saw this already. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. This kingdom, this world is not the end. This is not our kingdom. Our kingdom is one to come. Our king is a better king. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, those are the things that are eternal. Our hope is not in the world. Our hope is in spite of the world. In Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter two says, he became flesh, he humbled himself. Here we talk about the man or the woman who humbles himself. Jesus Christ humbled himself. He became a servant for us. He remained steadfast. He endured the pain of the cross. And he died so that like James says here, we can rejoice in our exaltation. We have been given a new identity. 
for in the presence of God, it is a prize for the one who humbles himself and says, I've got nothing else. I need, I want, I long for, I desire more than anything else, the presence of God. The presence of God, it also humbles the rich. If you think, man, I'm gonna invest in this world, in this kingdom that I see, when you stand before the presence of God, then you will be humbled. And at that moment, it'll be too late. So my plea with you this morning is to humble yourself. Place all of your faith in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. We're gonna participate in this meal that we call communion. And this is for anyone who, who says, I need something besides myself. And like Paul just said in 2 Corinthians 4, we're taking this bread and this juice and we're ingesting it and we're taking into our bodies the death of Christ. This is a reminder of Christ's humility, the call to humble ourselves, but it's also a celebration of what he promises to do for all time because we are going to be in his presence, not just as we participate in this, but we're going to be in his presence for all of eternity. That's our hope. So persevere. Hold on, hold fast to Jesus. That's all I have to offer. That's all that we have to offer. That's all the hope there is. Remain steadfast. Father, you are good. I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you wouldn't, um, that these folks wouldn't take my words, but I pray they would hear from you. I pray that even during this time, that our eyes and hearts would be turned to you, that you would minister to us supernaturally, that you would provide for us joy, that we would cry out to a God who is generous and who is faithful. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.